Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. If you have your Bibles today, I want to ask you to take them and open them with me to Daniel chapter 4 for this morning's message. Daniel chapter 4. Throughout the last several weeks, we've been looking at a sermon series entitled Fearless Faith. Fearless Faith. And in this sermon series, we've been reminded of God's calling for how we are to live, frankly, for the Lord in the midst of a culture that's greatly opposed to the Lord. And so far throughout this series, every single week, we have learned about fearless faith in a positive example. For example, in Daniel chapter one, we learned through the positive example of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who stood firm in their convictions and refused to compromise even though the king's edict and the culture around them was telling them to, to eat this meat and to, to, to live however they wanted to. They refused to compromise and they stood firm in their convictions. In Daniel chapter two, as the scripture unfolds, we came quickly to the understanding that they were faced with a hopeless situation and yet in their fearless, fearless faith, they believed that God would do the impossible and they trusted God and God intervened and gave them an interpretation for the king's dream. In Daniel chapter three, we saw the positive example as the king says, listen, you've got to bow to my idol, this 90 foot tall, nine foot wide idol of gold. You've got to bow and worship to it. And the Bible says they refused to do so because they were convicted that they would only worship and serve the living God of heaven. Then last week we saw about how we live in fearless faith in the midst of difficult and fiery trials in our life. Today, we're kind of turning the corner a little bit, and we're going to look at this passage of Scripture in a different way. To be perfectly honest with you, whenever I was praying through and mapping out the details of this sermon series, as I looked at Daniel chapter 4, I saw it very differently than the way that I'm going to be preaching it to you today. Because originally there was this positive focus on Daniel and his calling before God and how he boldly fulfilled that calling, even when the message to the king was difficult to share. But today, I want us to look at Daniel chapter four, frankly, from a negative example, a what not to do, so to speak. Now, I'm thankful that God in my life and in your life has given us some positive examples to say, do this. But there are also some powerful lessons that we can learn from negative examples where we can listen and we can watch and we can be reminded, don't do this. In Daniel chapter four this morning, I wanna preach to you on the subject, fearless in repentance, fearless in repentance. Perhaps when you put those two words together, fearless and repentance, maybe it sounds strange to you. Why, why would, it, would we need to have fearlessness in the context of repentance? But I think when we really examine what repentance is, we understand why it requires that we be fearless. The word repentance literally means simply a change of mind, a change of mind. However, it is much more, uh, much more involved in repentance than just merely changing one's mind. For example, I could today drive, well, actually, let me say, say Monday, I could drive tomorrow to Cookout on Market Street, and since they have like 100 different ways you can make a milkshake, I could get a milkshake, and I could drink it, and I could declare that this is the best milkshake I've ever had in my life. 
And then Monday evening, I could drive across the street to cookout and real, uh, to Chick-fil-A and realize the error of my ways because there is none that's as good as Chick-fil-A, okay? I can have a simple change of mind. But biblical repentance is more than just a simple change of mind. Biblical repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change in action. Biblical repentance, in other words, is a change of mind that involves turning from sin and turning to God, which results in a change in action. R.C. Sproul says it this way, a repentant life is a changed life, not in that perfection is ever attained, but in that the fruit of repentance, a change in action and attitudes becomes discernible in a person's character. So this morning, as we watch from online in our living rooms, as we listen here in the worship center, I simply wanna ask you, is there anything in your life today that you need to repent of? Is there any sin in your life that you need to turn from and turn to the Lord and experience the change that the Holy Spirit of God can bring about in our life? Repentance is vitally important in our lives. Jesus said in Luke chapter 13, verse three, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then for emphasis, he says it again, two verses later in verse five, I tell you, no, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The only way for you and I this morning to know the gift of eternal life, to know that we've been forgiven of our sins, to know that our soul is saved, to know that heaven is our home, is to believe in Jesus and to repent of our sins. But did you know this morning that repentance is not only for the unbeliever, it is also for the believer. That when we sin and we will, it requires that we repent of it and turn back to the Lord. In Revelation chapter two, as Jesus is addressing the church at Ephesus, a body of believers that were faithfully serving him, Jesus made this statement. Remember from where you have fallen, repent and do the deeds that you did at first or else I'm coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Well, why the word fearless? Fearless in repentance. Well, there's lots of reasons for that, but I believe wholeheartedly when we're brought to a place of conviction over our sin and we know that God is calling us to turn from it and to turn to him completely, God is calling us to, to literally lay it down and to leave it behind as we look to the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive us and set us free. When we come to that place, the enemy has a powerful way of bringing all sorts of fear into our hearts and minds. We begin to fear embarrassment and humiliation. What are others gonna think about me if they find this out? What are others gonna say if they know this thing that's been happening in my life? Many fear rejection and loss. What's gonna happen to my friends? What's my spouse gonna do if they learn these things that are true? Many fear pushback and persecution. Will my boss fire me? How's my family going to respond to me in this situation? There are many fears that come to mind when God confronts us with the need to repent. But I'm convinced this morning what God is calling each of us to do is this. Where there is sin, where there is sin, instead of hiding it, instead of covering it up, instead of dismissing it or demeaning it, God calls us to bring it out into the light, to bring it to him, to repent of it, and to experience the freedom that comes with forgiveness. And I believe God shows us this so loud and clear in Daniel chapter four through the negative example of a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. 
Now, if you've been listening to the sermons of the last few weeks, you know that so far, there've been several things that Nebuchadnezzar has experienced firsthand about the living God of heaven. In fact, already in the book of Daniel, he has said, there is no God who can interpret dreams like the God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We saw at the end of Daniel chapter three, he declared, there is no God who can deliver people from the fiery furnaces of life like the God of, of Daniel, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's no God who can do these types of things. In Daniel chapter four, let me give you just a brief summary of what's happening in verses one through 18. Again, Nebuchadnezzar gives a statement of praise to God. It's this God of heaven. The seasons are in his hand. The times are in his hand. The signs and miracles and wonders of the world, they're all in his hand. But please understand, while Nebuchadnezzar said the right thing, he was merely saying it. It was not truly the belief and the posture of his heart and his life. And so he's giving God lip service and God knew it. I wanna remind us this morning loud and clear that we can say and profess all sorts of things, but the proof is in the pudding. What are our actions truly demonstrate? Nebuchadnezzar had said many times, there is no God like the God of heaven. And yet by his very actions, he revealed something that was very telling about his life. Daniel chapter four, once again, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And then this dream, he sees this, this tree sprout up and this tree is beautiful. It's got all sorts of foliage and all sorts of fruit. I can only imagine how beautiful it must have been. And on a snowy day like today when it's messy outside, the ideas of spring sound pretty appealing, I would imagine. This beautiful tree springs up and it's, it's wonderful and all the birds of the air begin to make their nest in it and all these animals come up under it to find refuge and shade. And the Bible says suddenly in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, a heavenly being, most likely an angel, came down and in one swoop completely chopped the tree down. That's a powerful swoop, if you will. I mean, just one chop, chopped the entire tree down. But what was left in the ground was simply the stump. And off of that stump, there was a, a if you will, a, a large chain and there was brass and there was bronze, a muzzle, if you will, and the stump was left out in the pasture of the field. Nebuchadnezzar knew that this dream had some sort of interpretation. He knew that this dream had some sort of significance for him and his kingdom. And so the Bible tells us that Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter four, verses one through 18, he gets all of his professionals together. He's trying to get somebody to give the interpretation. Somebody tell me, what does this mean? What does this tree mean? What does it mean that it was chopped down? Somebody, anybody tell me. Finally, Daniel comes on the scene. Remember, God was the one who gave Daniel the ability to interpret the dream. And the Bible says that Daniel listened to the king's dream. And as he listened to the king's dream, he understood loud and clear what the message was. And it's in that message and Nebuchadnezzar's response that we see the importance of being fearless in repentance. This morning, I wanna ask you, Daniel chapter four, as I share with you a point of scripture, I'm gonna ask you to leave your Bibles open the whole message because we're gonna look at passages of scripture together as we go through the various points of the message. I want you to see this morning five things about being fearless in repentance. Number one, I want you to see the compassion of God in repentance. The compassion of God in repentance. Can somebody say the word compassion? Compassion. We see loud and clear God's act of compassion towards Nebuchadnezzar in this call of repentance. Notice with me beginning in verse 19 what the Bible says. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while and his thoughts alarmed him. The king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar replied, my Lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. 
The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant and which was food for all under which the beasts of the field dwelt and in whose branches the birds of the sky lodged. Listen to this. It is you, O king, for you have become great and grown strong. Your majesty has become great and reached to the sky and your dominion to the end of the earth. In that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods, that seven years, have passed over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord, the king. Verse 25, here's what it means. It means that you be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whoever he wishes. And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree for your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Verse 27, therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Please hear loud and clear what Daniel is saying. Daniel has listened to the king's dream. He understands the imagery, but he also understands the message that God is declaring. And here's what he's saying. O king, here's what it means. You are being envisioned by that beautiful tree that sprouted up. Look at your kingdom of Babylon. Look at all the people from the nations of the world that have gathered here in this place. They found refuge here, but O king, just like that king was struck down, you're going to be struck down. God's judgment is coming against you. God is bringing his consequences, if you will. And so king, I want you to know, you gotta be prepared because this is what God is doing. Maybe you listen to that and you think, my goodness, well, where in the world is the compassion of God in all this? Here's where God's compassion is. God is giving Nebuchadnezzar a warning God is giving Nebuchadnezzar a warning and an opportunity to repent of his sins before God's judgment would ever even come. Fact of the matter is, we'll see in just a moment from this past scripture that Nebuchadnezzar, even though he professed many things with lip service about God, he lived his life as if he himself was God. He lived his life based upon what he wanted to do, what, what he thought. He looked at his own kingdom and said, look at what I have done. Look at my glory. Look at my majesty. God in this moment is warning him of judgment that was to come. Have you ever been there? I'm reminded this morning that we often forget that the road of life is filled with countless warnings and opportunities to be right with God. Sometimes God allows circumstances in our life, that circumstances that come that maybe we get upset about along the way. But oftentimes in those circumstances, God is working and he's moving and he's speaking and he's providing an opportunity for us to be right with him and at times even right with others. But in that moment, there's an urgency that we must have. Sometimes God speaks not through the circumstances, but he speaks through a family member. Or he speaks through a friend who comes to us out of warning. He's given, and they say, hey, I love you. I'm concerned about the direction that you're going. And in that, God is giving us a warning. He's giving us an opportunity to repent and be right with him. It could be young people that a parent comes to you. They're concerned and they're looking out for you and they're saying, listen, I see this in your life. And as a young person, you might say, oh, you don't know. You're, you're an old fuddy-duddy. You don't know what's going on. But 
Oftentimes in those moments, God is giving us an opportunity to repent and to be right with him. It might be through a sermon. It might be through a pastor preaching. It might be through someone sharing the gospel or sharing a testimony with you that you hear it. And in those moments that you hear it, you're, you're thinking, you know, man, it's, it's just like God was talking right to me. Well, friend, I want you to know at times, if you feel like God's talking right to you, it's probably because he is. And in those moments at times, somebody say, well, somebody stepped on my toes or this happened. I'm telling you, oftentimes in those moments, it is God speaking directly to us, to mold us, to shape us, but ultimately to draw us back to a right relationship with him. The compassion of God and repentance is seen so loud and clear and that God gave Nebuchadnezzar a dream and the interpretation of that dream to give him an opportunity to be right with him. Let me ask you a question. What ways in your life right now is God showing you compassion and mercy and warning so that you can be right with him? Nebuchadnezzar dismissed and ignored the compassion of God. Secondly, I want you to see this. I want you to see the call of God to repentance. See, it's one thing to acknowledge the compassion of God. And in fact, the Bible tells us here in verse 27, that Daniel literally said, oh, king, may my advice be pleasing to you. King, don't ignore the interpretation. Don't ignore what the message that God is giving. Don't ignore the opportunity that God is giving. But he didn't just speak of the compassion. He spoke of the direct call to action. Listen to verse 27. Here's the command. Break away now. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. It doesn't get any more clear than this instruction. Break away now from your sins. Now, now let me illustrate that in a practical way, how God goes from compassion to a deliberate and direct call to action. And maybe this is a broken illustration, but let me share it. It's somewhat humorous, but it's a true story of what happened in my life uh, probably about seven years ago now. About seven years ago now, I was in Christiansburg, Virginia, and I was downtown uh, Christiansburg, and I had lunch with a good friend of mine, uh, a gentleman in the church. And I was so excited because whenever I pulled into this, this uh, restaurant that particular day, I was right on Main Street, and I was able to park right on Main Street, right in front of the restaurant. Sometimes it was hard to find a parking space. And so I parked, I went into the restaurant, enjoyed my lunch, my fellowship. I came out, I got into the car, put it in drive, and I probably drove, I'm not exaggerating, a block, maybe two, when I saw the blue lights of a police officer behind me. And, and, and you know how that, if you've ever been pulled over before, hopefully you've never had that experience, but my heart kind of sinks to my, my feet, you know, like I, I, my heart stops beating for a moment. And so this cop pulls me over and I pull over and he says, uh, do you know why I pulled you over today? I hadn't even had time to get up to 15 miles an hour. So I, had, I said, absolutely not. I have no idea, officer. He said, well, I pulled you over because you have an expired state inspection sticker. Well, that'll just bless your, 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 bless your life right there. And apparently he had been walking along the street, saw my state inspection sticker that was expired and thought he'd wait for me to come out of the restaurant. And that's exactly what he did. And so I tell you what, he said, I'll tell you what, I'm gonna show you grace and compassion. Uh, I'm not gonna give you a ticket, but you need to get that taken care of. I said, yes, sir. And I moved about my day and I told him I'd get it taken care of. Well, life gets busy sometimes, right? Life gets busy and you get distracted and you've got other priorities and things going on and that's exactly what happened to me. And I, <laughs> about three or four months later, 
right outside of our neighborhood on a four, there was a, a road they'd expanded from a two lane road to a four lane road. But in the process of the transition, they made a speed trap there because they were adjusting the speed limit. They were taking the speed limit down. And so I remember coming through this, this area of our neighborhood thinking nothing of it. And sure enough, I pass a cop, a cop gets behind me, pulls me over. And he said, do you know why I pulled you over? And I said, yes, sir. I was speeding a little bit. I, I was going four miles an hour over the speed limit. He said, that's right. He said, Taylor, I'm gonna give you a ticket. And then he said, wait a second. And I looked at him when he said, wait a second. And I realized it was the same cop that had shown me car and realized that almost three and a half months later, I still had not gotten my state inspection updated. You know what he did? He gave me a call to action. That's exactly what he did. He gave me a ticket and said, I'll see you at the courthouse after you get your state inspection. And so, but what I'm saying to you is this, the first time he showed me compassion, he's given me an opportunity and I even told him I would, but I didn't follow through. Three and a half months later, he made sure there was a call to action because I had to get the job done. God in his mercy gives us warning upon warning, opportunity after opportunity, but God is also very direct. In this moment, Nebuchadnezzar, here's the message. Break away now from your sins. Break away now from your sins. Please understand in this moment, Nebuchadnezzar had given all kinds of lip service to God, but his actions and his life had not changed. And so he says to him, break away now from your sins. And then he goes on to tell us something interesting. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Now, Daniel's not saying you can work for your righteousness. He's not saying you can undo your bad by all your good works. But Daniel understands that the greatest evidence of a life that's changed, it's not by what you say on Sunday, it's how you live your life, period. It's not by what you profess when you come together with the body of Christ, it's what you practice even in private. And so what Daniel's saying is loud and clear is, Nebuchadnezzar, you need to repent. You need to turn from your sin and you need to turn to God. And Daniel begins to make it clear to us that one of the primary evidences of Nebuchadnezzar's sin is the way that he took advantage of people, completely and mercilessly exploited the poor and, 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 and robbed and did all sorts of things. You can go study his, his, uh, his empire, if you will. But the fact of the matter is, what Daniel's simply saying is, you've got to turn from your sin and you've got to turn to God. Break away now from your sins. Can I just say to us this morning that there are some of us maybe watching online or maybe even here in the building today, that we need to hear that. We need to hear that. We, we come to a service and we play church. We might turn on the, the internet and we watch and maybe we're inspired or we're encouraged. Maybe we're blessed by such and such a song. But the fact of the matter is, the question is, how are we living? We can say all we want to. We can sing all we want to. We can declare all we want to. But what are our actions really demonstrating about our love for the Lord and our relationship with him? I'm reminded of the sobering picture in Revelation chapter three, verses 19 and 20, when the Bible tells us, Jesus says these words. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Jesus says in verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will dine with him and he with me. When Jesus said that, he was writing that statement to a church. Believers who were so caught up in their sin that their fellowship with him had been broken. And so Jesus says, repent and welcome me back in. We need to hear the call of God to repentance. Is there anything in your life today, I ask again, that you need to repent of, turning from your sin and turning to the Savior?
The third thing I want you to see this morning is the conflict of repentance. Nebuchadnezzar hears the message. Daniel confronts him and says, Nebuchadnezzar, God is giving you an opportunity. He's calling you now to break from your sins. Right now, you need to turn from what you're doing. Stop exploiting people. Stop taking advantage of people. Stop doing these things that you think nobody sees. God sees it all. He knows your heart. He knows what you're doing. Turn now. But this brings about a very real conflict when God calls us to repentance. Notice with me in verses 28 and following. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Listen to the next statement. 12 months later, 12 months later, verse 29, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might, listen to the pronoun, of my power and for the glory of my majesty? The Bible tells us while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. I want you to see this morning the conflict of repentance. Anytime God convicts us of sin and brings us to a place where we need to repent of our sin and turn back to the Lord, it brings about a major tension and conflict in our life. Because it demands some things. When we're gonna repent and turn from our sin and turn to God, it literally comes head to head with three major things in our life. It reminds me loud and clear this morning that you cannot go forward with God and keep living how you're living and doing what you're doing. It demands a change. True repentance always demands of us honesty, ownership, and humility. Honesty, ownership, and humility. Honesty. It means that you're not hiding it. You're not keeping it in the dark. You're not covering it up. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 28, verse 13, he that covers his sins will not prosper, but he who confesses them and forsakes them will find mercy. Honesty, you can't cover it up. You gotta bring it out into the light. It demands ownership. You can't excuse it. You can't blame somebody else. You gotta own it yourself. And it demands humility to admit your sin and turn from it, turn to the Lord when you and I come to that place of repentance, there are three primary conflicts. We see one of them loud and clear in Nebuchadnezzar's life, but let me give you all three. The first is shame, the second is fear, and the third is pride. Shame, fear, and pride. When we come to that place where God convicts us of sin, it is easy for us to respond in shame. Go study the example of Adam and Eve. What do they do when they realize their nakedness, they realize their sin, when God comes to walk with them in the cool day? Do you remember what they did? They went and hid. Shame will always, 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 always lead you to hide because it makes you feel that you are unworthy, that you are unlovable, that you are unfit, that you could never be accepted, that you could never be forgiven, that you could never be set free. But God tells us we gotta bring those things to him. He promises in 1 John chapter 1, verse nine, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Without even realizing it, many allow the weight of shame to hinder them from vulnerability and intimacy in close relationships at the height of which is a relationship with God. Shame says, go and hide, don't let anybody know. But God says, bring it to me and I can set you free. The second conflict is the conflict of fear. Want to study the illustration of fear? Go study the life of King David when he sinned. 
Go study the story of David when he sinned with Bathsheba and then when he sinned by having Uriah, uh, her husband, murdered on the front line of battle. Why did he act that way? He acted that way because he was afraid. And in his fear, he acted hastily and he acted foolishly, doing everything that he possibly could so that no one would ever know. It's in that fear that he began to establish a pattern of deceit and covered up that frankly followed his legacy from generation to generation. But on the flip side of that, God calls us instead not to fear, but instead to bring them openly to him and let him set us free. Acts 17 says it this way. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere, everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he's appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. In other words, it is better to repent of sin and suffer the temporary consequences than to reject the Savior and suffer the eternal consequences. The third major conflict we have in repentance is what we see in Nebuchadnezzar's life, and it is the conflict of pride. Man, pride. Pride has ruined so many people, and it can ruin us. Pride is a devastating conflict that hinders many people from ever coming to this place of repentance. Now, Daniel has confronted King Nebuchadnezzar, and he has said, Nebuchadnezzar, you need to break now from your sins and the ways that you've taken advantage of people and exploited them. You need to change that. You need to turn from that and turn to the living God of heaven. But Daniel's call to repentance exposed the true issue in Nebuchadnezzar's heart. See, ultimately, it wasn't just about the way that he was taking advantage of people. It wasn't just about his greed or it wasn't just about his desire for more power. It really all boiled down to an issue of pride. We see that in verse 30, as the king is there, I believe, most likely on the rooftop there of his palace. We understand today that one of the seven wonders of the ancient world were this, the beautiful hanging gardens of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar's out and he's looking out the hanging gardens of Babylon and he's talking to himself in verse 30 and he says, is this not Babylon the great which I myself have built? Look what I've done as a royal residence by the might of my power for the glory of my majesty. You hear his pride, like, look at what I've done. This is amazing and it's all for me. It's all about my name and my kingdom and my glory and my majesty. For now, I wanna remind us loud and clear this morning that the only person who's deserving and worthy of all glory is Jesus Christ himself. Nebuchadnezzar's in this moment seeking the glory and majesty and the praise that he thinks he deserves. He's revealing to us his pride. Just a year earlier, he was declaring, oh God, how great are your signs and wonders. And now 12 months later, he's saying, look at, oh, look at what I've done. <laughs> look at how amazing I am. For now, I want to remind us this morning that when your words are only lip service, eventually the truth will come out. For Nebuchadnezzar, he was too wise too powerful, too full of pride, to humble himself, repent of his sins, and turn to God. But this is always a recipe for failure. You're walking in pride, refusing to humble yourself, refusing to repent of sins, refusing to walk in holiness and humility before God. It is a recipe for failure. Listen to what the Bible says in Proverbs 29, verse 23. A man's pride will bring him low. Somebody said the word low. How low? We'll find out in just a moment. 
A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. James chapter four, verse six, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That word opposed literally means, it means to be hardened of arm. In our verbiage today in 2021, some of you are gonna go watch a little football game this night tonight, and you might find somebody give a stiff arm to reject a defender. That's the picture. It literally is saying God stiff arms, he holds at a distance, he rejects those who are proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We see this clear call to repentance, but instead we see his refusal in this moment, this conflict of pride that hinders him from repenting of his sin. The fourth thing I want you to see this morning is this. It's the consequences of unrepentance. If you're still with me, would you say all right? So what's the big deal? Why is it important that we repent of our sins and we turn to the Lord? Why is it important? Well, it's important because there's no way to be in a right relationship with God apart from repentance. But it's also a word of warning that we need to hear in this passage of scripture that when we refuse to repent, we are inevitably saying that the consequences of sin we're okay with. I like the way Owens Hawkins says, he says it this way, if we refuse to be broken over our sin, we are choosing to be broken by it. If we refuse to be broken over our sin. We're choosing to be broken by it. Notice what the scripture says in verses 32 through 33. And O king, you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Verse 33, immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and began, listen, eating grass like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. The consequences of unrepentance. God gave Nebuchadnezzar every opportunity to turn from his sin and turn to God. God gave Nebuchadnezzar, now he'd been living this way for a long time, but even after the warning, even after the interpretation of the dream, even after the call to repentance, God gave Nebuchadnezzar 12 months. Nebuchadnezzar did what we often do. He assumed since God didn't bring judgment immediately, he was fine to keep on living how he wanted to. Surely if what I was doing was so bad or so wrong, there would be immediate consequences But I'm reminded this morning, Ecclesiastes chapter eight, verse 11 says it this way. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. In other words, we don't see judgment or consequences. We oftentimes just keep doing what we're doing and that's what Nebuchadnezzar's doing. But I wanna remind us this morning loud and clear to not assume that God's lack of judgment means that judgment isn't coming. The fact of the matter is this morning, oftentimes when God is patient with us, it's because he's allowing us an opportunity to be broken of our sin, to repent of it, to turn to him, to experience his grace and his forgiveness in that moment. There are two consequences that stand out in Nebuchadnezzar's life that I think we need to hear this morning. Number one, it's the consequence of separation. Separation. God speaks through Daniel and says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're gonna be separated from those you love. 
One of the consequences, Nebuchadnezzar, of your sin is that literally you're gonna isolate and you're gonna separate. You're not gonna be around your associates. You're not gonna be around your companions. You're gonna look and you're not gonna find your friends. You're gonna look and you're not gonna find your spouse, your children. They're all gonna be at a distance from you. There's going to be a separation. You will be driven away from mankind. One of the first evidences of an unrepentant heart is the way that it isolates and separates us from those that we love and those who love us. In fact, if you live your Christian life, if you ever come to the point where you begin to realize that you are separating from others who have warned you, others who have prayed for you, others who have shown concern for you, if you find yourself separating, you need to pause for a moment and ask, why is this happening in my life? Is there anything that I'm hiding? Is there anything that I'm trying to pursue? Is there anything that I shouldn't be doing? Is there anything that Satan is trying to bring about as a distance and a separation? In this context, literally Nebuchadnezzar hears that message. You're gonna be separated from all mankind as a consequence of your sin. Please understand this morning that the Bible says that Satan is like a roaring lion prowling around seeking someone to devour. Maybe you've seen the illustrations on the Discovery Channel or the National Ge Geographic channels as you've watched and you've seen these tigers or these lions approaching some herd of animals and inevitably they're always looking for the, the weak straggler kind of behind or, and if they don't find that, they'll swoop into the herd and they'll single one out because in that separation, frankly, they're an easy, easy prey for a powerful predator. Satan often uses this separation and isolation to bring us to a place not only of sin, but to a place, frankly, of all sorts of calamity in our lives. Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're gonna be driven away from all mankind. You'll be miserable, you may blame, you may deflect, but the whole time, you're gonna be separated because of your sin. Second consequence is this, it's the consequence of humiliation humiliation. Can you imagine the scene that Daniel is proclaiming to the king? As he says, king, here's what the interpretation means. This beautiful majestic tree in your dream is going to be chopped down and a stump's going to be left there. And there's going to be a, 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 a frankly, a muzzle of some sort. And there's going to be there in, in the pasture of the field. And he says to him, oh, king, this is what this means you're gonna be struck down. You're gonna be separated from your kingdom. All the things that you've loved, all the things that you've been comfortable with, all the things that you've boasted and all your glory and majesty, it's gonna be completely removed and you're gonna live like a wild animal out in the pasture eating grass. Literally, your, your hair is gonna grow as if it were feathers. Your, your claws gonna grow as if it was the claws of an animal. This is a great picture of humiliation. I don't know about you, but I wonder, have you ever... Have you ever seen someone famous for something good only to find out years later they kind of squandered it away? Sometimes um, my wife and I, maybe we're watching a TV show or we're watching some sort of documentary and we'll hear about someone's name that we haven't heard in 15, 20, 30 years. Maybe they were an actor or an actress or a sports figure when we were younger and, and we're hearing about this wonderful thing they accomplished, you know, back in the 80s or the 90s or something. And we're like, oh, whatever happened to them? And we'll quickly Google, look them up, and we're like, man, I didn't, I didn't, how do they fall from grace so quickly? O.J. Simpson comes to mind. I hate to say that, but I think of O.J. Simpson, I think of the illustration. I remember several years ago getting a phone call, being asked to come preach a funeral service 
for a young man. He had, dried of a, he had died of a drug overdose behind a Kroger shopping center in Roanoke. And I remember going to visit with the family and I remember walking into the, the chapel of the funeral home and I remember seeing all these pictures of this young man. The guy was in his mid-20s. I remember seeing all these pictures set up and, and he was a baseball player. And most all of his childhood pictures was him with a baseball bat, him throwing the ball. And they had a letter. I'll never forget, they had a letter like on a plaque and it was a letter that he had received when he learned he had a full scholarship opportunity to play college baseball. And, and I remember sitting there just grieve, like how, how could a young guy with, with, with this talent and this athleticism and his whole life, how, how could his life end like this? And the fact of the matter is, is that many things happen in life like that. How, how, does, how does a beautiful young lady end up in a situation where she's surviving on the streets and doing whatever she has to do to survive? How does a notorious preacher end up alone in a prison? How does a king go from a palace to a pasture? Like, how do people experience these incredible falls? Because none of them wake up and say, you know, today, this is how I wanna ruin my life. This is how I want the end of the story to go. But the bottom line is this. It starts with a temptation. It leads to a choice to sin, a continuation in that sin that often leads to an addiction and an unwillingness to repent. When we begin to live in that sin, giving into that sin over and over and over again, the enemy heaps shame and the enemy heaps fear and the enemy heaps pride and all these things. If we refuse to repent, if we refuse to humble ourselves, if we refuse to lift our eyes to the God of heaven and say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. God, would you forgive me? God, would you set me free? If we refuse to come to that place, we will find ourselves separated and humiliated even as the king experienced. I want you to see the last point of the message and that is this. I want you to see the choice of repentance. Verse 34, the Bible tells us something so interesting. It says, immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and he began eating grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagles' feathers and his nails like birds' claws. Literally in his sin, here's what's happened. He has so given into his sin and so given to his pride and so hardened his heart, refusing to repent, that he literally loses his mind. And I don't say that lightly. I'm not being funny. Like he literally, the enemy has so played him that his mind has been greatly impacted living like a wild animal for seven years, verse 34, the choice of repentance. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. You got a pen or something, underline that phrase, raise my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Verse 36, at that time, my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. 
and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablishing my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven for all his works are true and his ways are just and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. When Nebuchadnezzar reached the lowest part of lows, separated from everybody and everything he loved. When he reached this place of humiliation where he literally lives like an animal out in the field after seven years, finally, the Bible says something interesting happened. That is this. He finally lifted his eyes to the God of heaven. At the beginning of Daniel chapter four, God declares loud and clear, Nebuchadnezzar, when you lift your eyes to me, I will set free and I will move and I will do amazing things. But he refused, he hardened his heart, he stiffened his neck, he rejected, he did not wanna repent, he did not wanna turn from his sin, he did not wanna turn from God. But now in this place of humiliation, he lifts his eyes towards God. That might be a simple statement, but please understand what's happening loud and clear is this. When Nebuchadnezzar came to the place where he realized his only hope for deliverance was in God, it was there that God set him free. This is an Old Testament picture of a New Testament truth that we find in Luke chapter 15 of the prodigal son there are some differences, but the picture is still the same. Of the prodigal son who leaves his father's house, he rebels against his father's will. He spends all of his money on riotous living, the Bible says. He literally begins to eat and to live like a pig out in the field. But in that place of humiliation and brokenness, the prodigal son lifted his eyes towards heaven and he looked towards his father believing that his father might have grace and mercy towards him. You remember what happened when the prodigal son ran home? The Bible says that the father ran to him, put his arms around him, embraced him, kissed him, welcomed him, had a celebration. Why? Because his son that was lost had been found. Nebuchadnezzar in this moment lifts his eyes towards the living God of heaven, trusting and believing that the God of heaven could have grace and mercy towards him. And here's what he experienced. He experienced that when we repent and look to God, we experience great rejoicing. Nebuchadnezzar goes from a palace to the pasture to an incredible place of praise as he closes verse 37. Now I praise in fact, the context of the verb there is continual. I continually praise and exalt and honor the king of heaven for all his works are true and his ways are just and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Nebuchadnezzar learned the importance of repentance, but frankly, he learned it the hard way, didn't he? Learned it the hard way. I imagine that none of us want to be chained out in the field eating grass. I imagine that none of us want to lose everything that we own. I imagine that none of us want to experience any of the sort of thing that Nebuchadnezzar did. And most of us think we never will. The fact of the matter is this morning, God calls us to experience freedom and forgiveness. But that freedom and forgiveness is only available to those who are willing to humble themselves 
repent of their sin, and turn to Jesus. It's really that simple. There's a great message here in Daniel 4 about Daniel and his boldness to proclaim a difficult message to the most powerful, wealthy, influential man in the world. But I think the message that God wants some of us to hear today is just simply this. It's time to repent. It's time now to break away from your sins and turn to the Lord. It's time now to not give lip service, but to live a life of devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. And my hope and prayer today is this. Whatever areas of shame that the enemy tries to bring, oh, God can never love you. God, don't, don't you share that. Oh, you could never be forgiven. Whatever areas of shame you're dealing with today, that you realize God's grace is greater than what you've done. Whatever areas of fear there are, oh, people will never accept you. They're gonna reject you. They're gonna condemn you. Whatever areas of fear, if so-and-so knows this, they're not gonna have anything to do with it. Whatever areas of fear that you would realize God's grace is greater than your fear. And whatever areas of pride, I pray that you'd humble yourself and repent and experience the joy and the wonder of knowing that God's grace is greater. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this morning. I, I thank you for this um, powerful and yet sobering picture of Nebuchadnezzar. Lord, at a time when you gave him opportunity after opportunity to repent of his sins, he refused to do so. And God, it's easy in our own life to, to sin, to stumble, to fall along the way and try to hide things, cover it up as if they never happened. And yet, as we do that, we're, we're dismissing the opportunity of being set free. We're giving in directly to the attacks of the enemy who wants to keep all those things hidden in the dark so that we don't walk in victory. And Father, the longer we hide those things, the longer we cover them up, the longer we deny them, it literally can eat us alive from the inside like a cancer that's ravishing our body. And so God, I pray today that where there's sin and where there's things in our life that we need to confess, I pray that we wouldn't cover it up. I pray that we wouldn't isolate and separate from others. I, I pray that we would not harden our hearts and walk in pride, but instead, God, today that we would humble ourselves, And in that humility, that we would turn from our sin and we would turn to you. Father, I sometimes think that seems harder to us when we know better. We know we shouldn't have gone there. We know we shouldn't have done that. We know we shouldn't have been in that situation. But God, I pray today that we would not allow the shame and the fear, the pride to hinder us, but instead that we would simply humble ourselves, repent of our sin, and experience the joy and the newness of your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness in our life. God, it's amazing to me to think that after all Nebuchadnezzar had done, one of the most cruel leaders ever recorded in history, it's amazing for me to think that you could show him mercy and forgive him and restore him. Not only to a right relationship with you, but even to his kingdom, it's, it's amazing to consider the depth of your grace. It brings me such encouragement because I know that I too have sinned and I've fallen short and I've messed up and 
God, I thank you for your amazing grace in our life. So God, I pray today that where there is sin, where there are things unconfessed, things that we've not repented of, may today be that day that we turn from our sin and turn to you. I pray in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.